0: What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers who through words and images strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. This
1: is Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERU I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Miku Paul, a poet, writer, visual artist, social, and political activist. She's a member of the Kings Clear First Nation community, grew up in Maine, where she lives in Portland. She is the author of 20th Century Pow Wow Playland, published by Bauman Books as part of its Native New England Authors Series. Miku, thank you for coming to the Pointed Furs.
2: You're very welcome. It's nice to be here.
1: So we're in search of an elusive idea of the spirit of place uh, for Maine specifically, but it's a larger idea, a larger concept uh and highly elusive i think but what characteristics would you consider when you think about place and its the spirits that are to be discovered there
2: well one of the things that i often talk with um non-indigenous people about is the the differences in world view and how those two perspectives during colonization collided. So really, for Wabanaki people, the land is more of a relation, and different topographies have specific uh, personalities, I would say, and uh, you have to respect their presence and what they truly are. So when we look at what we see is that relation and um, we recognize the importance of not coming into relationship with the land as ourselves being at the apex which is a very arrogant view Um, and the the in the broad picture I think if you if you consider with colonization Christianity coming into New England, and our view that everything is connected. The notion that everything that you do within a particular environment is going to, in some way, impact all of the various parts of that environment in different ways. That's sort of how we walk through the world. So I think... Uh, if we have poets, you know, like Longfellow and Thoreau, and uh, other uh, writers uh, that have written about places in Maine and how very special they are, um, and recognizing that uh, there's something there that's very special and maybe a little bit esoteric—that's uh, for the non-Indigenous view. But for us, it's it's always there. It's not something that we reach for. It's something that uh, we recognize, for example, how dangerous the rivers are. And yet the rivers uh, were and continue to be in many instances our roads. Um, But we recognize that there is a power inherent there, and so there is a respect that needs to be accorded, in addition to the fact that the river as entity also is interdependent with us because it provides food.
1: Well, what's what's really interesting even before you, even before native peoples, right. there was nature. Right. Uh, it it existed as a kind of complicated pure state, of 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 its own being, and there are characteristics that that within that idea that we can we we can we can think about fecundity, uh, danger. Um, complexity, uh, change—all of these things that are inherent in our natural systems—are um, there for us, regardless of where we sit on the historical line of time, to relate to. And native peoples were there first; they established a first relationship, and that's why I've asked you to to be one of our first interviewees because. That that perception uh, is 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 the foundation of what follows after whether the colonial, uh, whatever the colonial history is, and we'll get there. Right. But the but the that, to me, that's that's the the, the pure state uh, that I keep thinking about a lot these days. Because that pure state now, by virtue of everyone's involvement, is it is at risk
2: very seriously at risk. I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, For myself, I didn't have to discover that relationship. And if I had a particular point to make, it would be that that from my earliest uh, days, I was introduced to that relationship. And it simply became an accepted part of our life ways and our daily living. Uh, And so it becomes a very integrated kind of uh, thing. So, you know, I'm greatly concerned about the waters. So that's why my next manuscript is is just on the waters and all their denizens. Um, because I, you're absolutely right. If we don't find some way to get back into right relationship with nature or with the land and the waters, um, we're in deep trouble.
1: So can we hear your voice? There are some poems that speak directly to this.
2: Um, yes, uh, so fourth prayer uh, was written when I was living in in New York. Oceans of noise rumble and hiss, flow through soiled air, buoyant, flood rock sentinels, darken the walls of man's icon. Clustered paths lie stiff and gray, mosaic of footsteps that follow sharp, straight ways. In this place, man's cave is tall, hardened against wind, rain, a distant sky. Layers, brown and red, ripple down the avenue, sturdy, close, They grab at the heavens. Hidden trails lead between the mammoth thighs of stone houses. Here, worshipful ones tear themselves ragged, meld with their granite cage. Grandfather, bless me. Vessel of your teachings, fill my heart. Whisper my name. Invoke my spirit skin and lead me back to the garden of my childhood. River islands, green and soft, the ferns unfurling in the pale yellow morning light.
1: What I love about that poem is that it essentially equates the rawness of the city and the architecture with the actual comparable qualities of of pure nature, uh, that walking in the city, trying to walk a straight path, um, mammoth thighs of stone houses uh, reaching for the sky—all these kinds of ideas of 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 a place now and then uh, to become man's cave—it's uh, a to me, it's a beautiful, a beautiful evocation of, of what we're talk, talking about. So in the beginning, there was this idea of, of, of wilderness, um, you know, something particularly wild. What is what? What is wildness? And uh, I think one of your other poems speaks directly to 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 that.
2: Yes. Um, actually, Bunny McBride really loves that poem. I think she she memorized it. Um, that is bright colors from the earth and sky. And when I wrote that, I was really thinking about um, this notion of desire when we begin to crave something, um, uh, perhaps something that we don't necessarily need, and how trade entered into the relationship so early on with uh, the colonization and the arrival of the Europeans. And that, I think you're right, they are connected in this uh, notion of uh, the purity of, of nature and that relationship. Bright colors from the earth and sky. Before the ships, nature was our only mirror. A scarlet-feathered cardinal perched on a spruce tree. Umber-striated quills on a grumbling porcupine's back. Silver winter's whiteness, snow and ice. Black shadow of a bear's silhouette. Purple sheen, choke cherries drooping from a thin branch. Pale green skunk cabbage sprouting from the brown earth. Orange ochre riverbank clay, indigo night, and robin's egg. Golden, the morning sun's eye. So many hundred beaver moons since our hand first held those trade beads. Brilliant, sly, all bright colors from the earth and sky.
1: You know, uh, as you're reading, I'm thinking all of those things that you describe still, the cardinal, the silhouetted bear, uh, the chokeberries, the, the skunk ca- cabbage just today, um, are still visible. They're still with us. They've withstood history, uh, all our mistakes, uh, all our successes. Um and and that's one of the things about Maine that I think makes it so privileged, so privileged for us to live here is that very thing uh, that that, you know, the, the, the joke was always living in the city that you'd find a dandelion or you'd find a weed uh, or the tree that grows in Brooklyn. Um, and those those things were so powerful because they were so rare. And we're surrounded by them everywhere. We can go out our front door. Uh, even in, in in our cities, uh, and we can also access the forest and find these things um, uh, no matter who we are. Uh, it's we're free to be able uh, to do that. But as a Native American and descendant of the uh, first people to inhabit Maine, uh, there are principles and practices that 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 more and more become, amplified in, in, in all our consciousness uh, as we look into the 20th century and begin to understand how we're going to survive. What are the practices that you would cite that were established by your ancestors by which we can learn to live here successfully?
2: Well, there are actually so many, more than, you know, would really uh, fit our time constraints. But For example, it's the 21st century, and we continue to harvest fiddleheads. The fiddleheads are also a sign of spring. In order, the way I was taught, to know when it's time, you must wait for ice out. So the river has to wake and clear. Then, in terms of phenology, the fiddleheads are usually ready when uh, bud breaks, And the leaves are as large as a mouse's ear. That's what I was taught. Um, And (laughs) if you consider that with Indigenous peoples, the superb adaptation is one of the reasons we are still here. And uh, these practices that developed with very close relationship and observation of nature. And they continue to serve us uh, today. Uh, That's one practice. I'm trying to think of another. Oh, um, before we read catch, I was taught how to harvest uh, duck eggs in the spring. When you're on the trail, you have your fire and you take a piece of charcoal stick. You bring that with you in the boat. And when you find the duck nests, you mark the eggs that are already there with the charcoal. And then you come back a day or two later, and the ones with no marking are fresh. And then you take those. You don't ever, ever take all of them. But these are all these small things that we continue to to learn. Uh, The harvesting of a brown ash tree. It must be young and straight, as tall as two men. Um... And and that's still practiced today. And Wabanaki people have experienced a renaissance, really, uh, also with their historical basket-making.
1: We have an economy now that is uh, based on that fecundity and that observation. Fisheries yes. now being a major part of, of the economy of the state, uh, employing many, many, many different people and faced with the same kinds of questions of sustainability and limits uh, and seasonal change and the changing temperature of the ocean and uh, the, the corruption of habitat and, and, and uh, incubation areas and all those kinds of things, um, I think our listeners would respond to catch. It speaks directly to us.
2: Okay. Um, and this is about another practice that um, I grew up with. Catch. At night they come, enthralled with the flickering light, small bonfire flaming on the riverbank. Drawn in close by the shimmer and glow, eels swim in the shallows where the line wavers across their blurred passage. Later, their coiled bodies will lie heaped beneath the coals, slow cooked in the embers of the night fire. Stripped of the tougher skin, fleshy chunks land in the cast iron pan, sizzle in salt pork and onions, make them a meal. He holds the line tight at one end, while the other taunts them, hung with a morsel, sacrificial lure they grab the bait unaware barbed point buried deep inside sharper than anything they know caught drowning they choke and fight the line then spiral backward tear the soft throat the tender mouth we fish after dark this way my grandfather and I My silence, a comfort, never questioned. His eyes are a dark glimmer, his love steady as stone. And sometimes, when I pull an eel up from the whispering water, I find gleaming evidence of past capture, curved metal barb still clinging to flesh. These ones... He releases, snips the lead, and lets them return to a realm they understand. They will be back, he tells me. They cannot resist the light that beckons outside their own existence, the bit of nourishment that hides the sharp hook. Asleep in the river, I dream. I am a green-eyed snake breathing water circling toward a fiery brilliance, ensnared by the hand that stroked my skinny thigh, coarse lips on my four-year-old neck. The line snaps taut, and I am swimming backward, drowning in air, my own mouth hung with rusting hooks, trapped. Between dark water and bright flame.
1: I love the idea—the return to a realm they understand. It's the, it's the evocation of its opposite, the cliche where we are fish out of water. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Firs on WERU FM. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Miku Paul poet, teacher, activist, and member of the King's Clear First Nation community. We're discussing the spirit of Maine, as first witnessed as wilderness and source of sustenance and community valued by the indigenous first people who settled here. Miku, how how did you discover your call to poetry?
2: Well, you know, the Maine public education system has shifted significantly since we were young. And uh I went through the old town school system i'm sixty two and uh there were times when uh, we were introduced to you know the white European canon. We were introduced to a uh, literature and poetry as part of the curriculum, and that was something that I always enjoyed, and I also have always always enjoyed uh reading so I actually started school, because I'm a December child, a year late, and finished high school a year early. And I went to college because my teachers in Old Town came to me and said, we really want to help you further your education. So one of the things I did, because I had spare time, my senior year was just taking college prep courses. I had already completed all requirements in my junior year. But I um, I ended up writing a small manuscript, a small collection for uh, English credit. And I really enjoyed it. And I I had started doing a little bit probably at 15 or 16. um, And then I did the first collection when I was 17. And I never really submitted until much later in life. I continued to write, but I never, ever showed anyone. Uh, it always gave me a great deal of satisfaction and pleasure, uh, and I enjoyed the the conundrum of finding uh, the correct language to reflect what I was experiencing. Um, that, to me, is, is kind of a, a joyful activity. I think language is fascinating, and I, I love the shorthand of poetry and the power of poetry.
1: Do you identify, have you thought about it in such a way that you could identify that there are certain specific qualities of your voice that that you see working through all of your writings?
2: Um, I've been told that my voice is somewhat distinct. I, I don't only write narrative poetry. I enjoy narrative poetry, but I'm also interested in the formalisms. I think particularly what people say about my poetry is that I have pared away everything that is not needed. Yeah. In, in that sense, it's almost like sculpting, you know, where I'm, I could just keep removing. Um, and so then out of the negative space, then the words in the piece Uh, become clearer. Uh, I really, I like language poetry. I enjoy reading it. I'm not really a language poet in that I don't use tons and tons of descriptive material and so forth. I really like that simple, very clear distillation of experience.
1: I think one of the most horrible phenomena in the world is the taking away of language. Native American peoples all over the world have gone through this experience where their voices through their language have been essentially taken away in the name of assimilation. And when you lose your language, just as if you when you lose your name, you lose your identity. Uh, And for me, it's forgetting someone's name if I forget someone's name, a function of old age, it couldn't be any more disrespectful. It's probably the most disrespectful thing I could do, not to remember your name. And so to have an entire language taken away, to me, is just heartbreaking uh, and outrageous. Uh, So it comes to the question of mother tongue.
2: Yes. Uh, I, you know, my grandfather... He was a traditional from Kings Clear First Nations, and he actually lived traditionally to the end of his life. After World War II, he came back, uh, he, you know, he did uh, suffer from alcoholism, and he was very, uh, very deeply impacted by his war experiences, but he was also a brilliant man. But with my mom's generation, and partly with us, it was thought... In order to survive and, and sort of get ahead, um, you have to assimilate. Just do the best you can. And so it wasn't, my maternal grandmother didn't allow dialect to be spoken. My grandfather spoke French, English, and two different indigenous dialects. So I grew up only with certain words which are part of daily living, like, do you love me, I'm hungry, I need the bathroom, Uh, different, you know, little phrases that children need. And I really felt that, because he used to speak with me in our dialect, which is Pasmoquoddy, are very similar. Um, And so I grew up hearing the cadences of it, and the beauty of it. And he said that, uh, actually, the women speaking, he told me at twilight, uh, sounded very much like uh, birds, like bird music. Mother Tongue. Stolen child, stranger with no name. Her mouth has been sewn shut. The songs on their long flight years upon years, birth upon death, lost. Mute witness, what silence is this? Unfortunate demise, flesh and bone, language we lived by, scattered like pollen dust, the trace of finest powder. Possessed Our teeth clack and grind, purpled lips slap and curl, a strangled wailing, tuberculosis, dysentery, pneumonia. One thousand ways to kill a thing, and only one true way to save it. Our words, shape of sounds no longer familiar, buried at Carlisle. Oh, grandmother, we are wandering now, the map obscured, ripped and bloodied. We speak a strange tongue. We are ghosts, haunting ourselves.
1: One of the most difficult things so pertinent today is the biases that have existed for a long, long time, and which some of us are just discovering but Indigenous peoples in Maine have been viewed as a marginalized community for a very long time. And yet assimilation was the proposed solution. You went through that experience. Yeah. You had to, I mean, the, that in and of itself uh, must have been such a formative experience to, to essentially survive and maintain the integrity of, of, of what was your tradition, uh, and, and yourself.
2: Yes, you know, I didn't think about it much, obviously, at the time I was growing up. You just sort of struggled through. I actually really enjoyed school because I enjoyed learning. I did not enjoy the constraints that were put on me because indigenous teaching has a very different style, and I've written about indigenous pedagogies, um, and I work with public schools in doing projects with the students using that paradigm, which is absolutely different. Um, And I think it it actually also, over time, when we look at the research in CBE, culture-based education, What is being discovered is that when children in indigenous communities begin to lose ground on their scores, on their standards, that one of the big contributors is they're literally being alienated or turned off from their learning because their lived experience of teaching and learning in the community is really so very different from the public school framework. And, you know, we're looking at ways that that can be shifted and handled uh, in a better way. For me, it was it's a little too late, but I did write about it. Um, and I also, not long ago, Portland changed uh, Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. And I was with Molly and Dana at the school board hearing, and we testified. And it was so strange, but exciting and wonderful to think, it, here I am, I'm there talking to the, to the school board in the largest city in our state about the need for these changes, which, you know, obviously weren't there when I was young and growing up. So the hope is that in succeeding generations, they won't have to uh, engage so much with that particular struggle. This is a Jefferson Street School. A marvelous old building up in Old Town. I came here to learn. Kindergarten captive. Daily the unseen line redrawn. Chalked skin. A toe dragged in red dust. Repeat after me, Mrs. Lavoie said. Her talcum voice A soft drift in my ears. Invaders' language spilled from my lips. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I am the constant witness. Death, destruction, every chapter and arrival. Spanish, French, English. My own tribe nameless, discarded. The page blank. Bruised, I acknowledge those commemorative gifts. Two books black on Sunday, blue on Monday. Worn covers proclaimed reverent use. Recitation praise him from whom all blessings flow. Centuries come and gone. I memorize conquest recount murderous exploits, tales of that one you call explorer. Columbus, thief of human beings, collector of nations whose name will never be forgotten. Immortal now in stone and story, a myth summoned year after year, the calendar and invocation. No longer a child, I greet this false idol, hand pressed to bronze flesh, fingers trace polished granite, carved words, language that was never my own, yet all I've ever known. I do this in remembrance, meus animus in incendia, this soul's measure, lost in a chronology of symbols, five times 100 beaver moons. All those pieces of earth claimed flag waving under threat of war and more war. Lesson number one, my body, the geography, altered terrain, illumined in the brilliant October moon, fading in the morning sun that rises on Columbus Day. Lesson number two, Memory resides not in my head, but in my veins. More than the mind can describe. A silken web of souls. A drum pulse. A river of blood flooding the continent. Must there always be the wraith called suffering? The wolf called war? This river of blood may one day nourish the birth of a new story, a history of peace, the soul of a people.
1: Niku, your work speaks to the history and experience of your people, inequity and and injustice. While it speaks to Maine, it has the, the value of great poetry in that it speaks to others. Would you read for me Echoes of Multitudes?
0: Yes.
2: This was one of the first pieces that I wrote that eventually made its way to this manuscript. Um, But I was thinking a lot. I was a USM student at the time, still an undergrad, and I was thinking a lot about history, but also about um, anthropology and the way in which a culture can get framed and also just sort of become uh, something static, something relegated to uh, a past that is no more. Uh, So I was really trying to sort of invoke that uh, larger presence. Echo of Multitudes. Picture this. Great rivers snake through a forest, water road, traversed in season, straining and swollen at ice out, moving endlessly to the sea, shores where we gathered our food, trees, giants straight and sublime in haughty strength, ancient as Gluscabi himself, our leader and teacher. We are all kin, made in his image, born of the arrow that pierced the tree, born of desire and power, we step forth, count the souls, what number sits in the memory, call them thousands, tens of thousands, measure of a whole humanity, I name them many, I name them lost. Observe the village, is this not a community? Summer encampment thrives in the sheltering wood beside the blue water. Hogan's, longhouses, and wigwams. I name them home. Listen, children shout, laugh as they run past. Women's voices rise like twilight bird song, melding in slow music as they work. A blade scrapes hide The soft, sharp cadence weaves through the low murmur of men, circles a crackling fire. Consider, restless bones lie mounded in the cupped palm of the mother. Empty skulls do not see, how fortunate. The few, still standing, yet their fleshless hands reach toward those who remain. Will you see them now, crowding forth along the road you call history? Remember, add in the ones kept in drawers, on shelves, pieces archived, rare vintage of skeletal remains. There, where you carved the symbols deep, finally claimed even the calcified scraps of our bodies count again the ghosts of half a millennium surround you time is a story a season a thread that ties us to the bone people remnants form the equation now ledgered pages written by a conqueror's hand ask how many lived on this continent? How many are left?
1: Welcome back. If you've just joined us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERU FM. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Miku Paul, poet, teacher, activist, and member of the Kings Clear First Nation community. We're discussing the spirit of Maine as first witnessed as wilderness and source of sustenance and community valued by the indigenous first people who settled here. Acadia means idyllic place, a term often associated with Maine. What do you think about that movie?
2: I think that it's very important that we have these public spaces that are meant to be preserved so that we might have that relationship and experience with nature. I'm a very big believer in conservation. I've donated my art to various auctions and things, fundraisers for that work. But I I wonder, I think for Indigenous folks, you know, we have to ask ourselves why, why is there a necessity for a legal framework and a process in order to uh, impose protections for the land. At the same time that it's important we protect the land, I have to ask, why do we have to do that? What is that necessity? So again, for me, that really just sort of illustrates The difference in perspective and being in relationship with land.
1: Do you question the necessity, or do you question the way it's uh, the way it's legislated?
2: legislated. I know that we need that relationship. Um, I I find it disheartening that the only way we can seemingly um, preserve, and uh, and I hate to even say preserve, allow those spaces to survive and all their denizens to continue inhabiting them as part of the web uh, is is to legislate it. That uh, It just astounds me that that is necessary. Um, The ecologies are becoming so very important and even pocket ecologies and I deal with that all the time in the Portland region where we have folks using Portland trails and the, um, the promotion of the trail is always proceeding from that point of the human being the most important thing, not even the relationship or the land space itself, that we need that because it's good for our health or it's soothing. Um, and so there's no uh, framework in place to educate people on the necessity to protect uh, those spaces and uh, the ecologies with other creatures are still clinging to life in these patchwork areas around uh, urban settings um, and they are i was astounded the first time i found a salamander well, on four river trail i thought they're gone you
1: know right laws of course are are reactions to right. abuses We we legislate against abuses, whether they're against the traffic rules or ourselves. It's a sad comment on the human condition that our values don't determine and, and override the necessity for such laws and
0: relationships. Yeah, there's
2: been a breakdown, I think, somewhere. So we'll see.
1: My guest today is Miku Paul, poet, activist, Native American, and delightful guest.
2: Shall I read Acadia?
1: Please. It's a beautiful poem.
2: Dawnland, land, home, Penobscot Bay, this latitude constant in memory, where the river meets the sea, indigo currents merge into tide and time. Those summers on the shore, dozing on sand beach, lying by your side in the pearled weight of a long, hot afternoon. Muted scream of gulls, hiss, and murmur of breakers, a lullaby. Your hand in mine, strong still, like your husky laughter. When we leaned into the salty waves rolling, rolling up against our thighs. Your arm enfolding me in the misty chill on Mount Cadillac as the sea gave birth to the sun, the horizon on fire. Purple sky paled into morning. Look at that, you'd say. Isn't it all so beautiful? At 19 barely half your age i thought myself a woman strong enough to withstand this undertow of grief knowing i had maybe two years left to walk the rack line with you searching for bright bits of glass to fill the canning jar on the kitchen window sill. you loved this place acadia Trails strewn with pink quartz, gnarled birches crouched among stunted spruce. Humpbacked hillsides that faced granite cliffs, encircled by ocean, shift and surge of winds echoing the tides far below. Especially that border where the elements collide. Blue swells rush in to slap the rocks their seaweed tresses sprawled in the foam. I see your face most clearly then, when I recall walking that edge, suspended in this new territory between stillness and motion, the land and the sea, as she rises, breaking gloriously against the coastline's bouldered flesh, I remember your last sunrise at Acadia.
1: I've always saw the irony in that sign, welcome to the state of Maine, uh, the way life should be. How, How does this land inform our spirit? Can you sum it up?
2: I think that because the web of life really encompasses everything that we have to come to recognize and we are beginning to recognize that we are a part of the whole. And so the power in being part of that incredible web is something that can nourish our spirit and inspire us to protect it, and we have to protect it. Shall I read Return? If you will. Return is uh, Sestina. In graduate school, I got uh, interested in creating uh, formalisms. The activist in me loved the idea of taking a form that was brought here uh, with the Europeans and the Western canon, but then using that form to bring in content that uh, was very much reflecting my own cultural identity and at times actually being subversive as in trade in the new millennium, the triolet I wrote about fiddleheads and commerce. This is Return. Last night I dreamed I heard the earth groan, felt her bone shift deep inside my skin. I stood alone on her shadowed spine where ridges pronged with spruce emerge from stone. Shimmering with iridescent spark, a blade-edge moon hovered in the dark. As a child, I feared the stormy dark, thinking, I heard spirits howl and groan. Outside my window, lightning showed its spark, electric motes cascading on my skin. I lay in bed, my flesh felt turned to stone, breathing deep to stretch my wrinkled spine. Hove up like some earthen spine, Katahdin's peaks and cliffs rise in the dark bouldered arms and ribcage carved of stone communing with the mighty white pines grown swaying with the wind against their skin anchored there beneath the moon's bright spark a fire dying still gives forth a spark igniting fallow memory in my spine the flames contained within this trickster skin burn brightly, chasing nightmares from the dark. I hear a woman's voice cry out and groan, her restless heart bruising against stone. The trail leads on past cedar, stream, mm-hmm. and stone. Constellations light a distant spark. The bear, moon. Let's out a growling groan, stiffens midnight hair along his spine. We two are travelers wandering the dark, called to origin, trapped within our skin. Mooween and I cannot discard our skin or change our muscled heart for one of stone. He teaches me to welcome velvet dark. Guided by the moon's shape-shifted spark. We traverse Katahdin's rocky spine. I hear again the mountains echoed groan. My confused skin immersed in brilliant spark. A steady warmth flowed gently up my spine. Katahdin's song rose up from granite stone as sweet music replaced her beckoning groan.
1: Uh, the sweet music. We have just a short time left. I think you've brought a new poem today in honor of the great whales that range up and down the main coast. Would you leave us with Cetacean?
2: Um, Yes. Psalm for Cetaceans. Our relations who dwell in the oceans hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom thrive, thy will to survive continue as it has for eons. Give us this day our daily dread of declining catches. Forgive us our oil spills and cruise ship kills, though we seldom forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into apathy, but deliver us from ignorance and human greed. For thine is the blue world and the power, the story of life itself, forever and always. Amen.
1: Miku Paul, thank you for this generous, informative, beautiful, and inspiring conversation. Thank you
2: very much. It was great to be here.
1: Sarah Orange-Jewitt published her American classic, the country of the pointed furs in 1896, and it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, it is described as follows. It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnett Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story, the portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors, known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living, in nature, at work, for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point. There above the circle of pointed firs, we could look down over all the island, and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in, that sense of liberty and space and time which great prospects always give. What a perfect definition of the spirit of Maine. Please support our authors and artists. Visit our galleries and independent bookstores and give thanks for the natural beauty, security, and peace all around us. My guest next time will be Chris Newell, director of the Abbey Museum, Bar Harbor, to discuss the role of a museum as storyteller and keeper of historical art, artifact, and authenticity, evoking the spirit of Maine. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal.
0: You've been tuned in to Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERUFM 89.9 Blue Hill. Conversations from the Pointed Furs is a Leeds Island Books audio project produced by Tricia Badger with theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Find archive public affairs shows at WERU.org. Visit pointedfirst.org for more information and find us on your favorite podcast app. Listen the first Friday of every month at 4 p.m. for new conversations with authors and artists from Maine. Thanks for listening.